0: We read from Holy Scripture this evening in the prophecy of Daniel, and we will read Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar the king set to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the King hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time When all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever." A thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that should hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do ye not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harpsack, butt, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made? Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. And what we are reading now is our text for this evening. Verses 16 to the end. O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should Heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their their hats and other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake, and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We read that far in the Word of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we would make a serious mistake tonight if when we consider this passage, we would suppose that this is just a story, a true story, but just a story about three particular men, perhaps very, very extraordinary men who were saved by a great miracle, and that a salvation of them from a burning, fiery furnace, with God even walking in the midst of that furnace with them. But this is not anything that God does anymore. Like all miracles, it is done away. That, I say, would be a serious, serious mistake. It would be to basically reduce the story as miraculous as it is to a myth that has no relevance no instruction for us at all except maybe a parable or two that we can learn from The fact is that as we see in the entire book this is an old temple Old Testament example of the truth we know as the preservation of the saints, the subject of the fifth head of the canons. If you want an example of that truth, then one may turn to the book of Daniel, which has that as its main theme, the preservation of the church in the midst of the Babylon of this world from beginning to end. We have here now a particular example of that and the articulation of that truth one may find especially in our canons head five this is not a hidden truth and it is also a truth that is stated in terms of the story that is if we were to look at the preservation of the saints from the perspective of this particular Old Testament story, then we could rephrase that doctrine and state it this way, that the preservation of the saints is the great act of God as their friend through Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit to give them power and freedom over fire over fiery trials it is the power of God that even as our title makes clear makes them fireproof that is exactly what is meant in the pivotal passage where the three friends walk out of the fire and everyone everyone there notices that these men, upon these men, the fire had no power. That's the preservation of the saints. And as I said, it's not unique in Scripture. Isaiah 43, verse 2, When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle Upon thee, Maybe that text was in the mind of these men as they approached that fire bound. Similarly, the Canons, Head 5, Article 4 states the preservation of the saints this way. The wrath of God, we may say the fiery wrath of God, abideth upon those who believe not this gospel, but such as receive it, such as embrace Jesus the Savior by a true and living faith, like what was done this evening by three young adults. Those who receive and embrace Jesus by a true and living faith are by Him delivered from the wrath of God. God delivers them from His own wrath and from destruction and have the gift of eternal life conferred, upon them in this light we would also make a mistake if we would view the confession of Nebuchadnezzar as a genuine example of faith that would be a mistake because there was no preservation of Nebuchadnezzar's so-called faith he did indeed confess the son of God He did indeed confess that there was no other God, but he remained an unbeliever. That can be demonstrated and demonstrated because he was not preserved. You can check the annals of history. You can check the record of history. You can check the record of this man, and you will find nothing about this story. All witnessed it. Every leader, every general, every sheriff, every important man in his kingdom witnessed what happened that day, but not one recorded it. God saw that it was recorded so that we might learn about the preservation of the saints, which we consider this evening the fireproof friends of God. These fireproof friends of God. We notice in the first place their trial by fire. As I said, the preservation of the saints, according to this passage, may be put in terms of preservation from trials of fire. Notice, will you please, that the preservation of the saints is not that they will experience no fiery trials, that there will be no fiery furnaces, that there will be no danger. From fire, That's a gospel that some preach, but that's a false gospel. If that were the truth, then there would be no need to preserve from anything. The very fact that this doctrine is stated as the preservation of the saints means that there's something that would ruin them, harm them, destroy them, except God preserves them. And tonight, we look at that truth simply as the preservation from what that fiery furnace represents, which I am saying represents two things, but they are related. They represent that fiery furnace does, first of all, the great temptations and trials that we experience in this life. Trials and temptations that Satan uses to test our faith to destroy our faith to weaken our faith but that God uses for good God uses to actually strengthen our faith and to show it to be genuine that in the first place but there's more that fiery furnace with the Son of God in the middle of it and his friends God's own friends is a picture of the fiery wrath of God. The fiery wrath of God that would destroy us for our iniquity and our sins, but for the Son of God. This is the truth taught in 1 Peter 1, verse 7, which speaks about the trial of your faith "...being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ." There is the Apostle Peter putting the truth of the preservation of the saints in terms of trial of faith by fire. Because when we speak of a trial, that is what we must see as being tested It's not bodies and clothing and singed hair that is the issue, but it is the faith of the child of God in that fiery furnace. For that reason, this evening we're going to spend a little time looking at these fiery trials, their character as it's laid out in this passage. We can learn a lot about why it's fiery? Why is it a trial? Why is there an important need to be preserved by a saving act of God? In the first place, we notice that in the case of the three friends, this trial consisted or came in the form of the command of the king to worship an image with the threat of death by fire should they refuse. A lot to be learned there. The real trials of life are not simply where we break a leg, or we're diagnosed with cancer, or we lose a loved one. Those are trials, and those create pain and grief. But the real concern in them and about them is that we are tempted we are tempted to lose our faith we are tempted in the same way as these three friends and that temptation always concerns obeying God rather than obeying men in one way or another that's always what a real trial and temptation is all about like we have here there was a command a command to worship, to worship an image, to worship an image or die. Over against that command was another command, a command by God, by God who had redeemed His people from the bondage of Egypt, who had delivered them from the fiery furnace of that bondage, who said, thou shalt not do that who said thou shalt worship only me thou shalt have no other gods and thou shalt bow down to no to any other god that is as simple as it comes there's the trial there's the issue will one obey the king will one obey the word of man Will one fear the death that a man can inflict? Or will one obey God? Does one fear what God can do? Does one fear what God says? That's the issue. That's what faith is faced with. And in one way or another, all trials and all temptations really have to do with the true worship of God. And worshiping God alone. We have to see that. We have to see that even, say, we were diagnosed with cancer and we're forced to take all kinds of medications and rely upon doctors and those medications to stay alive. The great temptation is to put our trust in them and not in God. To so put our trust in them that we even forget about God. And what we have to see is ultimately in one way or another, it will be a bowing down of that God. And when we do that, we're no longer worshiping God. That's the issue. That's what's common in all fiery trials. And we need to look for that. We need to look for those things that in one way or another pull us away from pull us away from the true worship of the one true God in His church, with His people, and allure us to put our trust in something other than God. That's what all trials are all about, and it's really the trial of our life. Notice also that this trial came with an opportunity to justify obeying the king rather than God. This is also another feature of trials. You will often find that when trials come, there's a way of escape. Doesn't the Bible talk about a way of escape? Well, even the devil sort of, as it were, presents a way of escape and we need to look for it. often when there's trials, there will be a subtle justification that we could easily make. Some subtle way, even perhaps with appeal to the Word of God, that would allow us to save our life, to stand before the king and say, "I will kneel," and I'm not, and I'm not violating the law of God. Daniel and his three, or the three friends of Daniel, had opportunity to do that. What had God said to them? What had God taught them? God taught them to honor the king. It was not illegal. It was not wrong to bow down before a king to show that you were the servant of that king. It's not unchristian. It was not unbiblical for the saints even back then to acknowledge another king than King Jesus. Not only that's what they had been doing. They were servants in the employ of this king. Certainly they had sworn some sort of oath to him. How easy would it be to justify saying, well, this is our God-ordained king, and he has ordered us to do something, perhaps even justify it. You know, they had gotten a second chance. When you read the story, you, you have to understand, Nebuchadnezzar is mad, but Nebuchadnezzar knows who these Jews are. He has had an encounter with them before, you remember. In the first two chapters, he had become acquainted with these men. There was a reason that they were appointed rulers over provinces because he had found them to be very wise, very honest. And he knew who they served as God. Do you think anyone else but them would have gotten the treatment they did, which is not kill them now, but bring them here? And then when they come, the king knows who they are. He calls them by name, Shidra. Meshach, and Abednego. He gives them a chance, one more chance. We're going to play the music. And like everyone else in our realm, you bow down. Or else. He repeats it. Perhaps they could say to themselves, maybe that's a sign from God. Maybe that's a sign from God that perhaps it's not so bad if we just bow the knee. Who's going to know? Who's going to tell on us? Who knows who we are? And look at all the good that God is doing through us. Here we are. We, we have important positions. And we're Jews. We can use our positions to help our people. It's another feature of temptations. Often they come That in a little way, there's a a way we can justify the disobedience to God. A little way we can take the edge off it. It's what makes the trial fiery. The fact of the matter is, it was very clear, the choice they were faced with, it was very clear that that image had been set up as a form of worship. That the king... And especially Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this, had done this as a form of worshiping the king. Look at the image. Look at the previous chapter. Remember, the king had had a dream of a great image, and he had been told by the prophet that he was the head of that image. He had been thinking about that, and he erected that image interesting there's really two possibilities for this image you know all recognize that it could have been an image of their gods Marduk Marduk or Bel, a form of Baal. but if you read the passage very carefully you'll notice there's a distinction made between my gods and our gods and this image in other words it doesn't give the impression that this is an image of gods like Marduk or Bel, but as an image of the king himself, which would especially explain why he got so angry. Failure to worship the image was a personal affront, a personal rebellion, something that he took personally. Much more important than simply failing to worship the gods of the Babylonians. Not only that, we should see that the image was erected for religious purposes. It was, to bow down to that, a form of worship. There was a reason that it happened, and it's repeated over and over again with music, music of worship, music of the worship of its day. But the king had also raised that image for political purposes. There's a reason why he put it up in the plain where he did and called rulers in from all over the empire. He had raised that image to solidify his power and to unify this great empire that consisted of so many nations. How many times does he repeat that? All nations, all peoples, all you different tongues and tribes, bow down to the image. Why did he do that? Why the command? The answer is that he saw the worship of a god. Even the worship of himself as something that would be acceptable by all these people. You see, the worshipers of idols don't really worry so much if you bow down to another idol. There's only one god that doesn't allow you to bow down to another god, and that's Jehovah God. All the other gods don't really care. So it was safe to say, Worship me, worship my kingdom. And in doing so, he brought unity, solidified power in that. There was a reason for this, another reason why he became so angry. So, we have something here that we can put together with regard to trials, what's really behind them, what they're really about. The fiery trials that the child of God endures and that is preserved by the power of God isn't simply times of distress and sorrow. But trials of his faith. Faith of whether or not he will trust in God to save his life. Trust in God to bring him through. Trust in God, the one whom he serves. Will he serve this God and worship this God or not? Number two, they always involve whether or not we will obey God or men. Number three, they are subtle fiery trials, fires aren't so subtle, are they? But fiery trials are subtle. It often is a way that we can justify disobedience to God by appeal to something else, something religious, something that might please God in our own mind. And Finally, there is always the threat of some harm or hurt if we refuse. That's what trials are, fiery trials. But before we move on, we have to see there's much more going on here. That fiery furnace and that king represents something far more sinister. You see? Now we're going to be somewhat brief here because there's more chapters in Daniel that we intend to go through that make this very, very clear. You see, what's going on here represents the fiery trials of the church. And that the church faces for its faith in this world. And this world under the power of the antichrists. Yes, there are many antichrists. There were already back then. Nebuchadnezzar is one of them. The book of Daniel makes clear that there's more coming. There are more antichrists. King of Persia. The king of Greece, the emperors of Rome, and they bring fiery trials of a whole different sort and kind. In fact, we may really lump them all together. That's what this passage does. It says, Take all your trials, doesn't matter where, where, really where they come from or what they have to do with, they all really are attacks on the church by the devil through his appointed officers. You see? There's a reason why when you get to the book of Revelation, and it's instructing us on the end times, especially the times just before Christ comes, that it characterizes that life as a life that is threatened is being persecuted by one called Babylon. Babylon. You say, where does that come from? Well, you can go back to Daniel. I should go all the way back to the first Antichrist, Babel and Nimrod. But there's more, and that is that he operates and persecutes with regard to worshiping an image, his image, worshiping him. When you get a chance, maybe you could read what the young people did this morning, Daniel 11. I could read a portion of that because it sets forth not only Nebuchadnezzar but the Antichrist and any Antichrist describes who he is and what he is earlier in the book of Daniel later after this he's described as one who sits in the temple of God declaring that he is God in Daniel chapter 11 He's described as a king who shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things, that is, blasphemous things, against the God of gods and shall prosper. He will regard no other god but himself. He worships himself. He worships the power of man. Called the God of Forces, there. That's really what this is all about. This isn't just a trial from Nebuchadnezzar upon three friends. This is an all out attack of the devil against the church. And this will play out over and over and over again. This plays out in the lives of the children of God over and over again. It's helpful. It's helpful if you're going through a fiery trial to look at the big picture. It's not just the devil showing up when you're sick who says to you, you know, God hates you. God's mad at you. That's why, that's why you're suffering this. You might as well just give up. Why do you trust in that God, you worthless thing? That, that, that's, that's not really what's going on. It's part of the battle of the devil against the church, the church that he hates, the church that he hates for Christ's sake. That's why his first attack on Christ involved temptations. That's why his attacks always concern false worship and disobedience to God. He knows what God thinks of sin. He knows what God does with sin. And that's why you have to see the fiery part of it is really devious if you think about it. You, you, You see, in this life, what is it that tempts us? What is it that really gets to us, and the answer is, well, I could die. This could so hurt me that I die. It doesn't mean if it's persecution, but whatever it is. I could die. And then what? You see? And then there's the whole aspect of that, which is what death really is. Death is an aspect of the wrath of God against sin. If it weren't for sin, we wouldn't die. If it weren't for the wrath of God, that death wouldn't be what it is and why Scripture likens it to fire, the fires of hell. The fires of hell that burn and burn and burn and burn and never consume a person. Now all of that is used. The devil uses it for his purpose. God uses it for his purpose. But it is, it is what adds to the fire of the trial. What if this? What if that? You know, you know what would be going through your mind if you were those three friends. You know what's in your flesh. It was in their flesh too. Make no mistake. They went through. There was a calculation. If this thing, this king, if he does what he's going to do, he's going to kill us. We're done for. And that death is not going to be pleasant. Well, what we have to understand is all of this will come to a culmination. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. We need to remember that. There's a man coming. He is Satan's representative. Satan's Christ. And this Christ will develop sin to all of its perfection. He will be Satan's own incarnate one. He will promise to be your savior. He will promise to be your friend. He will Unite the nations. All will be under us. But he comes with an image. If you will exist and live in his wonderful kingdom, you must bow to him. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message of Revelation. And that ultimately is the fiery trial of the church. And the message of Scripture is, lest the church be destroyed, Christ is coming. Now we move on to consider next the power that these three friends were given over the fire. You see, preservation of God, that doctrine, is really this, it's the saving act of God whereby He gives the child of God power over the fire. All three of those friends were given a power. A power whereby they could walk in the midst of that fire A power whereby when they came out of that fire, they were unaffected by it in any way whatsoever. We may say that preservation is the power of God that maintains the strength of our faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we're not overcome in temptation such that we lose our faith or we fall into the fires of hell. That's the lesson here. It's a real power. We misunderstand that must understand that our salvation doesn't simply consist of what happened in the death of Christ but exactly because of the death of Christ there is a real power that preserves God's people God's friends that's the lesson to be learned here and we have to understand that because fire has real power doesn't it power fire has the power to harm and to hurt that's why it's often pictured the way it is in scripture it's painful It's a real power to consume and to destroy, to take something down to dust. There's a reason why. It's a picture of the wrath of God, the utter wrath of God upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. (coughs) Did Did you notice that parallel even? Nebuchadnezzar orders the death execution of someone by cutting off their head. Think of all the different ways he could kill somebody, but he chose that it be done in a fiery furnace. Why? Because it represented his wrath. If you cross that man, he is going to make you pay in a way that you can't possibly imagine. He wanted him cast into a burning fire furnace because it represented his own anger at such disobedience. Now take that and multiply it infinitely when you talk about God the King of kings and the Lord of lords, do we understand that our sin is far worse than disobedience to Nebuchadnezzar? He throws you in the fire, you're done. It's over. A little bit of pain, you're done. Gone from the earth, but you're done. It's over. not so, with the fiery wrath of God in hell. So preservation must have a power to it, a power to overcome that power, a power that defeats that power. And that, whether it has to do with hell or it has to do with the trials of life, our life in the midst of this world, it must preserve our faith when we're sick, when we break our leg, when we lose our job, when our friends walk away from us, or when the Antichrist comes and persecutes the church for its faith in Jesus Christ. And we must have A real power, a real understanding, now even, that we are delivered from the flames of hell. It all goes together. There's one power that we're really given. The power, of course, is the power of Jesus Christ. It is amazing how easy it is to see Him there. Even Nebuchadnezzar knew that who he saw was the Son of God. calls him an angel, but he recognized that what he was seeing was something strange. Someone walking. He saw the Son of God in our flesh, walking. He saw the Christ even before He was incarnate. Amazing thing there. Amazing thing that God revealed there. What's that all about? Well, God uses means to preserve us. God did that with these three friends. We know that God gave them faith. Gave them faith in God. But God had used means to strengthen that faith, to direct that faith, to prepare the faith for that moment. It's really worth a study sometime. God has a way of doing that, doesn't He? If we face a severe trial, it's not like all of a sudden that trial crept up on us. If you start looking backwards, you're going to find two things. Number one, that the actual power by which you are preserved is not in you. It's not even your faith. It's Jesus Christ. He's the power. He's the one that walks into the fire. He's the one that preserves All knew it. Oh yes, there was a power given to these men, but that power was the power of Christ over the fire. He doesn't come out of the fire. When an unbelieving Gentile like Nebuchadnezzar confesses that there's only one God in all the world that does such things, it's pretty apparent who the power is. But there's much more to that was Christ just preserving and protecting those three men there in the burning fiery furnace no he had been them with them throughout he had preserved them in the great Holocaust of Babylon destroying Jerusalem he had seen to it that they were preserved in the palace of the king they had already gone through severe trials Concerning the king's meat and regarding the dream where their life had been threatened for not knowing the dream. What was that? That was the preservation of God. God preserving them by the power of Christ. God had given them friendship. Three friends. Four really. To uphold and strengthen one another far off away from home even as young men. God had taught them His Word. They knew what God had said. They knew what God had said to them as the redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. They believed these things. God had taught them. God had led them. But even more than this, and this may not be discounted, they didn't just believe in God as a greater power, a stronger power, a force greater than what fire is or what death is, but saw the real preserving power of God that He literally takes the fire on Himself. Do we not know now that that is what Christ did? These saints saw that in picture form. They saw their salvation in types and shadows. We have seen Him come. And what did He do? The Son of God went into the fire, the thing that really is the harm of us. Not just that which kills us in the flesh, that which Nebuchadnezzar can threaten, that which the world can say we take away, but the fiery wrath of God. That hell He entered into. And He took it all on Himself. He sucked all, as it were, the power out of it. And like in this passage, That doesn't mean there's not going to be things that hurt and sting and create grief and sorrow, but there's no power in them to destroy us, to wreck us, to bring us to hell. There can't be. That's the real power of preservation. For my last point, I want to talk about the freedom from fire that they had. Now this may sound an awful lot like the power that was given to them, but there's a separate point that needs to be made here because it's made by the Holy Spirit. And it's made when, you notice, they went into the furnace bound. They were bound. Held in the arms of mighty men. And the mighty men who went to throw them into the fire are themselves killed. And that fire doesn't touch them except one thing. There's only one thing the fire... Touches. Did you notice that? It wasn't their hair. It wasn't their clothes. It wasn't anything on them except their bonds. Those ropes that were tied tightly around them so they couldn't even move. All fell off. And they were in the fire, walking around, alive. In other words, this is a power that frees one. It's freeing. That's the idea too. When the king calls them out, they actually step out of the fire. It's not that they remain in the fire walking around, but they come out of the fire. And when you look at them, and you look at their life, you'll notice something. Number one, God had been preserving them from their own fiery trials, and it had been liberating. Did you notice how quickly they answered the king? when they say, we're, we're not careful to answer thee, they, they weren't being disrespectful. What they were saying is, we don't, have to need, we don't need time to think about this. This is not a hard one for us to answer. We have a two-fold answer for you, King. Uh, number one, um, our God is able to deliver us out of thy hand. We, we believe He will. Some way, somehow. But even if He doesn't, even if He doesn't, all you can do is kill us. Our God still will be with us. Now you ask yourself, well, what is that? And, and the answer is, they weren't afraid of that furnace. Even before they went in, they weren't scared of it. They were freed from fear. They were freed from even worry about it. They didn't have to think about it. That's what we're talking about here. And then you look at their life, and, and you, you look at their deliverance, and if you know anything about it, the, the real amazing thing here is not that they were delivered from a burning, fiery furnace, but they were delivered from all the corruption and sin and evil and wickedness of that empire All the decadence, all the adultery and fornication and everything that went on, they went through it all and they remained the children of God. Think of what they saw, what they experienced, what they had opportunity to do, and God preserves them in that. You look at the book of Daniel and you'll find that this is it for them. Daniel's going to have to go through a pretty severe trial here in a little bit. He has his own personal trial to undergo with lions in the den again about the same topic from a different perspective really same lesson in other words they live their lives free free from fear free from the fear of fire and furnaces that's the word of God to you tonight If you ask how it is that a child of God can really go through what what's the power there what's the form of it and the answer really is they're free. The child of God knows he's free. Why does he not fear death? Why does he not fear sickness? Why does he not fear whatever may befall him? Oh, he may have some earthly worries and concerns. We may even doubt this, but preservation is God does not let us fear. And that's because in the first place, we know there's nothing that can hurt us. You know how liberating that is? to know that God has delivered you from the fires of hell by paying any penalty that's due to God from you. What that means is, there's nothing, there's nothing that can hurt you. Nothing. Lose your job, that can't hurt you. Lose a friend, that can't hurt you. Take, a, take an axe and chop off my head, that don't hurt me. You can't hurt me. Do you understand what power that is? When Satan comes, and He's there in the fiery trials, when He's there in the form of Nebuchadnezzar screaming and hollering in His anger and wrath, and how dare you disobey Me? How dare you live in My kingdom? Out! Your answer to Him is, You can't hurt Me. I'm free. I'm free from God's wrath. I'm free from God's curse. I'm free from the fires of hell. You see how they go together? The one is freeing with regard to the other. And if we find ourselves in earthly trials and temptations, where we're filled with doubt and anxiety and all that, you know what the problem is? We're afraid of the fiery furnace. We're afraid to die. We're afraid to suffer anything because we're not believing in God. But then when one remembers, I in fact am one that has been filled with unbelief, and there's been many times I've forgotten my God, and my God has paid the price for those one can stand. And that's the power of preservation, you see. And that's the lesson that's learned here about these three friends of God. They literally are fireproof. No fire. No trial. No temptation. No sin. No king. No decree can hurt them because God is their friend. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, the Word of Thy salvation, the Word of Thy grace, the Word of our own preservation in the Babylon of this life, even against the great and severe persecution such as the world has never seen under the Antichrist should it come in our lifetime. O Lord, by Thy power, preserve us, take away our fear and our doubts, and make us stand so that we are not careful to give an answer this we pray in Jesus name Amen